0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkel and coming up on the program, as Donald Trump changes his official residency from New York to Florida, we'll look at the history of presidents in the Sunshine State.
1: In a way, three people have their presidential careers launched in Florida, even though none of them are from Florida.
0: We'll
2: discuss military installations in Florida. But it really wasn't until the 20th century that the United States started to realize the potential of Florida as a military training site. And while he's most often associated with California, Jim Morrison
0: of The Doors was from Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Donald Trump has announced that he is changing his official residency from New York to Florida. Florida is one of a handful of swing states that actually determine the outcome of our presidential elections. In recent decades, Florida's 29 electoral college votes have gone to both Democratic and Republican candidates, making the difference between victory and defeat for both political parties. James Clark teaches history at the University of Central Florida and is author of the book Presidents in Florida, How the Presidents Have Shaped Florida and How Florida Has Influenced the Presidents. Clark points out that as important as Florida has become to our election process, there has never been a president or even a vice president from Florida.
1: It's amazing. Florida is the uh, largest state in the union to have never had a president. And, uh, and, of course, Vermont's had two, and with President Obama now, Hawaii's had one. Uh, not only have we we not had a, a president or a vice president, uh, we've never even had a nominee.
0: During the American Revolution, Florida was under British control and remained loyal to the king while the colonies to the north sought independence. By the time George Washington was sworn in as the first president of the United States in 1789, Florida was again under Spanish control. In 1821, future president Andrew Jackson oversaw Florida's transition from a Spanish colony to a United States territory.
1: The earliest people who became president, there were there were several. One, of course, was Andrew uh, Jackson, uh, who comes uh, while it was still a, a, a Spanish territory, uh, came while it was a British uh, territory, uh, mainly to fight Indians, uh, and then uh, came as the territorial governor briefly after it was acquired by the United States. Uh, Future president, Zachary Taylor, comes to fight Indians uh, in the Seminole Wars. And then, of course, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt comes on his way to Cuba. So in a way, uh, three people have their uh, presidential careers launched in Florida, even though none of them are from Florida. As
0: Jim Clark points out in his book, Presidents in Florida, in the 20th century, all U.S. presidents come to Florida, and some make the state their second home while in office.
1: John Kennedy, his uh, father had bought a home in uh, Palm Beach, and uh, it's where uh, two uh, two of the most famous things associated with John Kennedy took place. One, he wrote Profiles and Courage there, and two, he wrote his uh, presidential inaugural address there. Harry Truman, uh, his home away from home was in uh, Key West. Uh, George Bush, his family has always uh, had a home here going back almost a century. So uh, presidents have loved to come to Florida uh, for golf, for vacations, for swimming, uh, for fishing, and to look for votes. Harry S.
0: Truman spent so much time in his Key West home during his presidency that it became known as the Little White House in the mid-1940s through the early 1950s. The Key West residence is preserved as a house museum that you can visit today. Senator George Smathers is a prominent figure in Florida politics. Jim Clark says that President Nixon essentially tricked Smathers into giving up one of his Florida homes to the president.
1: Basically, Smathers, in 1968, after the election of Richard Nixon, smathers was leaving the senate retiring after uh, three terms and there was a rumor that smathers was going to be named attorney general and sure enough uh, there was a call uh, from nixon's office saying that the president-elect wanted to talk to him and ask him a favor smathers assumed that meant he was going to be offered the uh, cabinet post instead when richard nixon called he asked if he'd sell him his home in key biscayne Uh, smathers said yes and uh, it became the Key Biscayne White House. And, of course, Richard Nixon was there that weekend that the Watergate burglary took place.
0: Since the 1800s, tourists have been coming to Florida to take advantage of our natural environment. Clark says that many presidents have enjoyed coming to Florida to go fishing.
1: Chester A. Arthur, who was the first sitting president to come to Florida in the 1880s, went to the Orlando area and uh found this place uh, and thought it was the most marvelous place in the world uh, a place called reedy creek and the fishing there he said was amazing it was beautiful and what's amazing is that uh 80 years later walt disney came to the same spot and bought reedy creek for walt disney world and uh one of the strange things it's hard to envision this at the time but uh Chester A. Arthur could not go south of Kissimmee uh, when he came here in the 1880s because the telegraph line ended there, and he would have been a president out of touch with Washington. There was no telegraph south of Kissimmee, so that was the southernmost point a president could go.
0: In his book Presidents in Florida, Jim Clark explains that the Reedy Creek area that is now Disney property has been the site of some historic presidential moments.
1: Presidents have uh, strange relationships, first of all, with Walt Disney. Ronald Reagan was one of the hosts for the opening of Disneyland in California. And he and Walt Disney were close, close personal friends. Richard Nixon, of course, was a uh, senator from California and then vice president, knew Walt Disney well, and he and his family were regular visitors at uh, Disneyland. And they continued that into the, the White House with Disney World here in Florida. Uh, Richard Nixon gave his I am not a crook speech uh, at the Contemporary Hotel at, uh, at Disney World. Uh, Ronald Reagan was in Orlando talking to a, a religious group when he gave his famous Evil Empire speech. So uh, Barack Obama has, uh, has been there. Jimmy Carter has been there. Uh, both of uh, George Bush's have been there. So quite a legacy of people speaking at Disney World.
0: Warren G. Harding was a frequent visitor to Florida, staying mostly in Daytona Beach and on Merritt Island. Just before being sworn in as president in 1921, Harding spent two days stranded in Titusville.
1: I think this is the sh- the story that shows how the presidency has changed, that uh, his boat got stuck uh, near Titusville. And uh, today, of course, you'd have helicopters and the military coming in. They left it on the... Uh, uh, the sandbar for a couple of days before the tide lifted it off. Uh, at one point, uh, Harding got bored on the, the boat, rowed ashore, uh, took a taxi cab for a ride around just to see what was happening, came back to the dock in Titusville, bought some mullet, and took it back to the ship for dinner. Uh, I, can you imagine that happening today?
0: Entrepreneur, land developer, and shameless promoter Carl Fisher created Miami Beach When Fisher thought that Warren G. Harding's visit wasn't getting enough press coverage, he brought an elephant into the picture, literally. Jim Clark.
1: He came to Florida really right before his presidency to get ready. He went to St. Augustine, uh, stayed at the Ponce de Leon Hotel to uh, work up a list of cabinet officers, then went south for uh, a little cruising, uh, fishing, he loved fishing, and uh, uh, to just kind of relax. Instead, he fell into the clutches of Carl Fisher, the man who built Miami Beach, and uh, ended up uh, at uh, Fisher's uh, beautiful uh, hotel, the Flamingo Hotel on Miami Beach, the resort hotel, uh, playing poker, drinking, carousing, and playing golf. And to get the maximum publicity, uh, Fisher obtained an elephant to uh, use to carry Harding's clubs. So of course, it was on the front page of every newspaper in America. President of the United States with an elephant carrying his golf clubs.
0: Florida became a very active training ground for all branches of military service during World War II. Among the hundreds of thousands of soldiers who came here were some future presidents.
1: Two presidents, uh, John Kennedy did uh, PT boat training here and of course would go on uh, to achieve fame as uh, the commander of... uh, PT one hundred and nine in the Pacific. Uh, he went uh, under. He went uh, training here, uh, and also the first President Bush uh, went uh, uh, pilot training in South Florida. As you know, Ben, the state practically was a military base during World War II, and so uh, they were one of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, young men and women uh, training for overseas assignments.
0: The Bush family has many ties to Florida. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush is the son of former President George H.W. Bush and brother of former President George W. Bush. When terrorists attacked America on September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush was visiting with schoolchildren in Florida.
1: He was at a uh, elementary school in uh, Sarasota and he, the, uh, went there first thing in the morning. He was supposed to uh, read uh, with some schoolchildren there. They were going to read to him, show what their reading capabilities were, and uh, a lot of confusion, as you can imagine, from that day. But apparently, as so many people were, he was told there had been a, a plane crash, but so many people assumed it was a small plane and it was an accident. And then later, as he was with the, the school children, found out it was a apparently a terrorist attack and uh, immediately taken to the airport and moved around that day before heading back to Washington. Over the past two centuries, U.S.
0: presidents have fought wars from Florida, vacationed here, and established part-time residency in the state. In our modern political climate, all presidential candidates must come to Florida to court our 29 electoral college votes. Donald Trump has spent a lot of time in Florida during his presidency, and when his presidency ends, he plans to make the state his permanent home. We spoke with James Clark, author of the book Presidents in Florida, How the Presidents Have Shaped Florida and How Florida Has Influenced the Presidents. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. At myfloridahistory.org, you can also register for our upcoming Caribbean conference cruise. We'll be sailing aboard the Carnival Breeze to exciting destinations with ties to Florida history, including San Juan, Puerto Rico. Engaging presentations will take place on board the ship with special tour excursions on land. Cabins are filling up quickly. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida has a long history of hosting military installations.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. Going all the way back to the 16th century, really with the founding of Florida and the founding of St. Augustine in 1565, it was really for military purposes and for most of the early Spanish occupation of Florida. Florida was really a military outpost. It was a, a, a garrison site for soldiers. It was of strategic importance to hold on to the peninsula more than a, uh, a colony that the people really wanted to come to. I mean, the weather was difficult. You couldn't force people to immigrate here, but you could force soldiers to come to Florida, and that's generally what happened, at least during the early Spanish years. During the British period, it was really the same situation. They tried to incentivize settlers, but uh, oftentimes the interior of Florida and along the Gulf Coast and the East Coast of Florida were resigned for really military purposes. They would repurpose the same sites over and over again, a lot of the old Spanish infrastructure, much of which still exists today, was reused time and time again by the Spanish, the British, and later by the Americans when they came in in the 19th century. But it really wasn't until the 20th century that the United States started to realize the potential of Florida as a, as a military training site more than uh, more than anything else. And that really has to do with the weather. The same reason that people wouldn't move here, it was warm year-round, it made Florida a great site for training bases and training installations because you didn't have to deal with the weather, uh, of course. So during the uh, uh, really big beginning with the the Spanish-American War, late 19th century, right on the turn of the 20th century. The First World War was probably the largest buildup up up to that point. There were a couple of large army bases built in Florida. One of the largest was called Camp Joseph E. Johnston. It was just outside of Jacksonville, uh, and there were about 40,000 troops uh, stationed there at one point. Even though the the U.S. was only in the war for for about a year, they still mobilized tens of thousands of troops, and, and many of whom came through Florida. And then a few decades later, during the Second World War, we had about 200 military installations either established or expanded upon during the period that the U.S. was involved in in the conflict. A massive, massive mobilization of troops, and a lot of that infrastructure survived well into the 20th century. So a lot of those installations grew into what would become Air Force bases and naval stations and, and things like that, and they still exist today.
0: Now, the Florida Historical Society Archive recently received a donation of artifacts and documents from various military installations around the state. What are some of the items you have here?
2: What we're looking at is a wonderful overview of that 20th century military occupation. We have kind of a an interesting grouping of, of materials. This was a, a private collection, someone who was interested really in just military installations and, and the presence of the military in Florida, mostly during the 20th century. What we're looking at here are these yearbooks. These are these are essentially annuals. So when a class came through one of these training bases or these training sites, generally they were photographed, they were compiled into these books, and you know you could send it home sort of thing. What we're looking at here, this is the earliest. It's called The Rookie. It's from Fort Barrancas uh, outside of Pensacola 1927. And this shows the Florida the National Guard. So this is after the First World War. So you kind of had the the military was winding down at that point, but you still had to have some kind of home guard, some kind of uh, a group that was defending the, the homeland, if you will, the state of Florida. So this is a, a really great look at some of the uh, National Guard soldiers, many of whom were First World War veterans who stayed in the military, were part of the National Guard, the militia services. We also have some newsletters. This is a newsletter from MacDill Air Force Base, 1945. So again, during the Second World War, We have another one called The Avenger from the US Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale, dated 1945. We have some other yearbooks from the Second World War. This is from Tyndall Air Force Base. This was a flexible gunnery school. So everybody that went through that training, they were photographed in, in these books. And what's kind of interesting and, and difficult to think about, but a lot of these young men, of course, didn't make it back from the war. Uh, and they may be immortalized in these in these yearbooks, and these photographs. And then we have some more contemporary one. Here's uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in the 1980s. So this is one of those installations that existed into the latter part of the 20th century. And it's kind of the same thing, information about about the site and it also talks about how it fits into the broader Bay County community. So now you see kind of an effort to, to assimilate these bases because they, they do become a part of the civilian background. In fact, going back to the Second World War, we talked about some of the Army bases. Camp Landing was one of the largest in Florida and they had about 22,000 civilian workers who came into Florida just doing the logistical work to try and make a training base like that work. So there's a big impact on Florida's history. One more thing I want to point out, too. We have some original photographs. Now, these photographs actually date back to the late 19th century, 1896, 1897, and they feature Fort Broncos right outside of, of Pensacola, and they were taken by uh, U.S. Army soldiers who were stationed there uh, during the buildup to the, the Spanish-American War, and they're really very interesting. These are personal photographs, so these are not like official printings. This is a soldier who had a camera who was walking around trying to chronicle their life, their camp life. In fact, on the, on the reverse of one of these photographs, it says here that the there's a giant pile of wood, and it says chopping wood pile. This is the, the ultimate time killer for a, an Army soldier in the 19th century. So a uh, really great snapshot of the experiences of these service members who came to Florida to train.
0: Now, of course, today military installations remain active in Florida, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. I talked about some of the more contemporary yearbooks and and annuals that we have. We have several that go all the way up into the the 1990s. These air bases have expanded. The Army bases, the Naval stations, they've all evolved over time. Of course, the mission has evolved over time. But again, Florida's uh, weather still attracts people to Florida's coastal regions and the interior. And it still remains kind of a great site for a lot of these military installations.
0: Well, Ben, a lot of really fascinating documents and photographs here. Thanks. Sure, Ben. Thank you. Ben Biassi is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Many popular musicians grew up in Florida, including Ray Charles, the Allman Brothers, and Tom Petty. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. She points out that Jim Morrison of The Doors was also from Florida.
1: Riders on the storm
3: Riders on the storm
1: into this house were born into this world we're thrown like a dog without a bone and actor
3: out alone riders on the storm
4: while he is often associated with California Legendary rock musician Jim Morrison was born in Melbourne, Florida in 1943. His father, Rear Navy Admiral George Stephen Morris, was raised in Leesburg, Florida, and worked at Naval Air Station Melbourne during Jim Morrison's childhood. Between 1962 and 1964, Jim Morrison attended Florida State University in Tallahassee, where he studied psychology and film. I recently sat down with memorabilia historian of hard rock, Jeff Nolan, who talked with me about musician Jim Morrison, his ties to Florida, and his musical legacy.
3: I love those kind of things about Florida. When you find out, you know, Jim Morrison's from Melbourne, of all places. Nothing wrong with Melbourne, you just don't expect the Lizard King to crawl out of the swamps of Melbourne, but there you have it. Between the Melbourne connection and, of course, the Miami bust, there's a lot of Florida legacy to Jim.
4: In 1965, Jim Morrison moved to California and studied film at UCLA, where he met a graduate student named Ray Manzarek. Along with John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, they formed the rock band, The Doors.
3: Can you name a band that sounds like The Doors other than The Doors? I can't, nobody sounds like The Doors. Nobody really even tried because it was singular. And that only works with somebody like Jim out front. Otherwise, it's just acid circus music with that frantic Ray Manzarek kind of key thing. Everything sounded like a sideways calliope. And how do you even make that work? Well, Jim was the fulcrum of the whole thing. It works only if you have Morrison.
4: Jim Morrison also had a scandalous tie to Florida, the infamous Miami incident. In 1969, Jim Morrison was charged with profanity and indecent exposure at a concert in Miami.
3: If you look at the short life and really short career of Jim Morrison, the Miami incident is a blip on the radar and completely incidental. Rockstar gets on stage, is hated by the cops, and they bust him. You know where it was good? It was good for building the Jim Morrison mythology. But the idea, anybody who listens to The Doors has followed them, paid attention to them. It's not even in character. They really couldn't get booked the same after that. And it effectively drove a wedge into the band. I mean, that's tragic.
4: The Miami incident may or may not have even happened. But it was the beginning of the end of The Doors. In 1971, Jim Morrison died of heart failure in Paris, France at the age of 27. In 2010, Jim Morrison was posthumously pardoned by Florida Governor Charlie Crist for the Miami incident. Jeff Nolan reflects on the musical legacy of Jim Morrison.
3: What I think of Jim Morrison is really the archetype frontman of popular music, not even just rock and roll. There are certain people who fronted rock and roll bands historically that are templates, and Jim is one of them. That, I think, is his big legacy. Also, he did something to popular music that is not wildly different than what Bob Dylan did to popular music. I think that Jim took that Dylan idea of actual poetry and wordplay in popular music to really make art, as opposed to just disposable radio product that sang about teen love. Because if you think about before Dylan, that's pretty much all it was. Morrison took that to a very far degree, and that's an impressive legacy. Even to this day, the mythology is just as fun as the music, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's all part of the art.
4: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker. (laughs)
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can follow the conversation on Facebook and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biassi and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.